Good evening. And uh, we are to uh, hear Paul's letter to the Romans, just a few verses at the beginning. And I'll be preaching on the theme of um, justification by faith and by faith alone, um, a theme of immense importance, of immense importance to every one of us, justification by faith and by faith alone. Let's hear then the word of God from St. Paul and uh, Romans chapter 1. I will start with uh, verse 14 and read through 17. I'm obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then also for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So far, the reading of God's own word. Thanks be to God for his word. The story tonight started October 31st, 1517. 500 years ago, the eve of all saints, it came out of nowhere, out of absolute academic Siberia, a junior college for monks. And not in one of the more enlightened parts of the world or of the realm, the, the Holy Roman Empire, as they called it back then, which was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, but that German peasant province called Saxony rolled over by a duke named Frederick, and comprised almost entirely of peasant farmers, and the tiny backwater town of Wittenberg. Who started it? A junior professor of Bible. I, I think I understand who that fellow might be. A monk of the Augustinian order, the son of a man born as a peasant to a farming grandfather, a farming father, that man born to the peasants became an owner of copper mines. He entered into the middle class. His name was Hans. And in entering into the middle class as an owner of mines, he was able to send his brilliant son to the best schools. Who is the brilliant son? Martin Luther. The father, Hans Luther, the son, Martin Luther. And there, without um, fanfare or cheering crowds, with neither drama nor public acclaim, this young monk walked up to the bulletin board of the university. It happened to be the castle church door, just adjacent to the dormitory entrance where the scholars came and went. And there on the castle church door, the Church of All Saints in Wittenberg, he posted a notice calling for academic debate. Does this sound like the stuff of legends? Okay, a call to academic debate. The document was posted on the church door and the language of the document was Latin. This is not the sort of document you pause to read on your way into church. 
It was 95 sentences. Well, that was just the body of it. There was an intro as well. 95 sentences in Latin. This is not the sort of thing you pause to read on your way into church. It was instead a challenge to academic debate among the scholars of the university. And the young monk, this professor of Bible, Dr. Martin Luther, yes, a doctor of the church, this young monk, uh, 37 years old, I believe, uh, at that time was challenging his colleagues, his academic um, friends uh, in the university to debate 95 sentences in Latin over the issue of the sale of something called indulgences. This is how the Reformation begins. It's the most unlikely of all beginnings for the great story of a hero, for that young man is actually a hero of the faith. And those 95 propositions in Latin about something called indulgences debated whether it was right for the church to authorize the sale of release from the punishments of sin. That's what an indulgence was. A document approved by the Pope under his seal that in exchange, well, usually for money, though it was technically a gift, you almost never got one without buying it. All right, technically a gift, but the document promised release from the penalties of sin, typically in exchange for money. And to add insult to injury, the money from the sale of these indulgences was not to, go to the, not to go to the poor and the needy of Germany, among whom the indulgences were being sold, but rather to pay for the building of the largest building in the world, in the richest part of Europe at that time, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Has anyone been there to see that? Immense, immense place. As I climbed up into the dome, there's a stairway inside the double shell of the dome. You get higher and higher inside the dome, and you bend over further and further and further because the dome is bending with you. And eventually, near the very crest, you look down a window to the floor 450 feet below you. That's not quite half the height of the Empire State Building, which is in my youth the tallest building in the world, no more. But in my youth, okay, the Empire State Building, the tallest building in the world, they nearly equaled its half in the 16th century in the building of St. Peter's. The architect, that famous turtle named Michelangelo. Oh, I'm sorry, he's not a turtle. Yeah, pardon me, okay, not a ninja turtle, a real person. Michelangelo, the great artist and architect, the designer of that great building with its dome. And so instead of um, the wealthiest provinces in the realm of Europe, um, the realms of Europe uh, paying for the building of this crystal cathedral of the day, it was the German peasants who were paying for it. And that offended a great many of the German lords and dukes, such as Duke Frederick, Luther's own prince, the prince of Saxony. And uh, the other half of the money was going to repay the debt for a certain young aristocrat named Albrecht of Brandenburg, if you know those Bach Brandenburg concerti, that's the same family two centuries later. Albrecht, I guess we can call him Albert for English. Albert was only 26. And he was not the oldest son in his family, so he would not become the Lord. 
And the best he could do was become, well, perhaps bishop. Well, let's aim a little higher, archbishop. And so at age 26, he requested the pope to be made the archbishop of Mentz, the most important archbishopric in all the German territories. The pope says, okay, for a small fee, I'll stretch canon law, which said only by age 30 do you get this privilege of being an archbishop. Uh, okay, I'll stretch canon law for a small fee, namely 21,000 gold ducats. Now, 21,000 gold ducats is about $3 million in current value. Okay, so for $3 million, Albrecht, I'll stretch canon law and grant you that title, the Archbishop of, um, of Mentz. And so the money is going to places which are offensive to a whole lot of patriotic Germans and which are theologically offensive to well-instructed Christians of good conscience. Can church office be bought or sold? No. Simon Mages tried that in the book of Acts, chapter 8, that magician of Samaria who is baptized, believing the preaching of, of Peter and John and those who came before, and when he sees miracles done by the laying on of their hands, he says, here's money, give me this power. And Peter rightly says, and I won't uh, paraphrase much at all, but the text means this, may you and your money go to hell. This is not the way to the gift of God. And so already in the, in the 14th century, a great treatise against the buying and selling of office, of church office, is, is written by uh, John uh, Wycliffe in Oxford called On Simony. Why Simony? Named for Simon Magus of Acts chapter 8. The sin of attempting to buy the grace of God in the ministry, the buying and selling of church office. This cannot be done. And can you buy less time for the punishments of your sins? This cannot be done. And so, quite unbeknownst to himself, Martin Luther, a monk of the Augustinian order, in a junior college for monks, in one of the poorest provinces of all of the realms of Europe, academic Siberia, as R.C. Sproul once called it, uh, in this very pulpit, um, the man who might otherwise have lived and died in complete obscurity began what we now call the Protestant Reformation of the Church. Now, my duty tonight is not to preach Luther. That would be quite offensive, wouldn't it, to preach Luther? Okay, the duty is to preach the Scriptures. But it so happens that it was Luther's wrestling with the Scriptures that gave to the church a far deeper clarity as to the meaning of the scriptures. And it's in particular in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, that Luther wrestled most of all in his career as a young professor of Bible. And so in hearing these words from Romans 1, we come to that sentence in verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the text with which Luther most struggled, according to his own written testimony. 
righteousness. That's the issue. Job asked a question like this in Job chapter 9, verse 2. How can a mortal be righteous before God? Right? How can a mortal be righteous? We heard from uh, Dr. Ellenbaum earlier today the reading of Zechariah 3, where the high priest of Israel in 500-something B.C. appears before the throne, uh, the trial of the angel of the Lord, uh, as if clothed in filthy garments, the robes of his priestly office covered in dung. And heaven reclosed the man with clean ceremonial robes and a new turban upon his head, and he's qualified now for the office of priesthood by the decree of heaven. That priest represents all of us, covered, as it were, in filth, as we try to present ourselves in our own righteousness. It's Isaiah, another prophet, who speaks of God clothing me in a robe of righteousness. That's what Luther needed. And that's what Luther did not understand. And so in Luther's uh, young manhood, before he ever entered the monastery, it was prayers and vigils and fastings and visits to the tombs of the saints in hopes of gathering enough merit to merit further grace. For in that medieval piety of the Roman church, it was said by the Council of Orange, meaning back in 529 AD, that salvation comes to all the baptized, quote, if they labor faithfully. If they labor faithfully. That was the most important theological synod for the Western church for nearly 800 years, and it paved the way for medieval piety in the West, that salvation comes to all the baptized, quote, if they labor faithfully. So how does salvation come? First, by the grace of a sacrament, the grace of baptism, which is said to enable obedience, and then by laboring faithfully. By the time we get to the middle 1300s and the teaching of William of Ockham, that teaching got morphed into a more severe message. To whom does God give further grace beyond the grace of baptism? the further grace by which you can obey and at last be saved, it comes, quote, to those who do what lies within them. Now, what in the world does that mean? It means it comes to those who do their best. That as grace has enabled you to a certain degree to obey, obey to that, to, to that very degree, and then further grace shall be granted to those who so, and here's the word, merit it. Now, in the teachings of Thomas Aquinas from the 13th century, it's clear that there is no absolute merit in such deeds. There is instead a gracious acceptance by God of such deeds, a kind of as-if merit. But this as-if idea was usually forgotten. So to whom does grace come? The further grace by which one might then at last be saved after the years of pilgrimage upon earth? It comes to those who do what lies in them. That is, to those who do their best. Does that sound like a formula for assurance? Is that a place for peace of conscience, for peace of mind? I'm reminded of an old story from a 
from a certain former president of ours, uh, Jimmy Carter, not a president of Geneva, but I think of something bigger. And um, when he was in the Navy years and years, decades ago, he was a candidate for the nuclear Navy. And in those days, uh, one admiral controlled everything about the nuclear Navy, the legendary Hyman Rickover. How many remember that name from newspapers and story? Okay, legendary fellow. So the Nautilus, the first nuclear submarine, okay, finished under his uh, careful eye. And to join the nuclear Navy, you had to go through his office and be interviewed. Young Lieutenant Jimmy Carter is there on the famous short-legged chair that always wobbled. And Wickover, Rickover asked the question, did you always do your best? How about that for a question? What if that's the question that qualifies you for the next stage of Christian life? What if that's the question that qualifies you for tonight and tomorrow in God's good grace? Did you always do your best? Well, that's essentially the teaching of the medieval nominalists, William of Ockham, Gabriel Beale, who became the reigning theologians for the generation of Martin Luther's training. And so here's how Luther puts it. I had been captivated by an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up till then, it was but a single phrase in chapter 1 that stood in my way. The phrase, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. I hated that phrase, righteousness of God which according to the use and custom of all my teachers I'd been taught to understand as the formal active righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and judges the unrighteous and the sinner. Luther continues, quote, I did not love. Indeed, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, I was angry with God. I said, as if it were not enough, that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the Ten Commandments without having God add pain to pain by the gospel. And also by the gospel, threatening us with more of his righteousness and wrath. Okay, now do you get the picture? If the grace of the gospel comes to those who do their best, all the baptized who do their best, is there any hope even in baptism? Can even a sacrament help? It's like Admiral Rickover is now the God of heaven sitting upon his throne. He looks at you and says, did you always do your best? Here's how Luther then puts it. Thus a furious battle raged within my perplexed conscience, but meanwhile I was knocking at the door of this particular passage of St. Paul. Is he Eric Clapton? Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. He's knocking at the door of St. Paul, he says, seeking to know the mind of the great apostle. What's the text again? For in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed, 
a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's the door, says Luther. Quote, Day and night I tried to meditate upon the significance of these words. The righteousness of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then finally God had mercy on me. And I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that gift. That gift of God by which a righteous person lives, namely, faith. And that this sentence, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, denotes a passive righteousness, namely, that the merciful God justifies us by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And then we have a beautiful sentence. Here's how Luther writes it. Now I felt as though I had been altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And just as intensely as I had before hated that expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praise this most pleasant word. And so this passage from St. Paul became to me the very gate of paradise. How does one stand before God? That was Job's question back in chapter 9. How can a mortal be righteous before God? In the teachings of those medieval nominalists that dominated the academies of Luther's training, you merited grace by doing your best. No wonder Luther was haunted. And so in Luther we find the discovery of the gracious God of the gospel who had been there all along. He'd always been there. And the church had always worshipped this God, this triune God in Jesus Christ. The church had always proclaimed the, uh, the power of faith and the grace of God. And the benedictions always said, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And the priests always said, you are forgiven. Te absolva. You are forgiven. The priests always said that. There was grace. But this grace was eclipsed, hidden behind a dark moon. And the light of the sun that should have been brilliant in the ministry of the church of Jesus was dimmed by a dark moon. And so Luther grows up without the assurance that Jesus Christ really will save him. And so in the gospel, what do we have? Paul says it this way, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. That is, the whole world is, is under the preaching of the gospel, and in this gospel we have the good news of a redemption made available by Jesus, the incarnate God, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And so in that Jesus, who is the incarnate God, the good news himself in person, we have God's power displayed. The gospel is the power of God is, because, is true because Jesus is the gospel. And in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, we who stand like that priest in Zechariah 3, coated in filth, are reclothed by heaven itself, and we stand in a robe of righteousness given as the gift of grace, the righteousness of God, 
Or as Paul will later say in the letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, the righteousness of Christ. Not a righteousness of my own that comes by the law, but a righteousness from Christ. And so this power comes in a way that is absolutely astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. The good news is that it's God's power. So can it be defeated? No. Sam says no. It cannot be defeated. For the one who believes in Jesus, this power cannot be defeated. And so the gift of God comes apart from all human effort. St. Paul makes it even clearer in chapter 3, a passage that Luther eventually got to. And I'll read a few lines then from that chapter, Romans 3 now, verse 21. But now a righteousness of God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through, what's the next word? Faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is no difference. And then there comes a line from St. Paul, often misquoted even by preachers and theologians. First, I'll read, no, I won't read, I'll say the misquote. You ready for the misquote? Here it is. Verse 23, misquoted. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Hey, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Have you heard it said that way? All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. What are the tenses of those verbs? All have sinned, okay, a past tense. And have fallen short, another past tense. That's not what Paul writes. Paul writes far more radically and far more helpfully for us. And here's what Paul writes. Verse 23 from Greek, okay, well, in good English, from Greek. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a present tense verb. What's that sentence about? That's our biography, our past. We have sinned. That's true. That's the history of each one of us. But the verb, the next verb goes on to penetrate far more keenly. And fall short. That's my present moment. Here I am in the midst of the holy deed of preaching. And yet, what is my heart? It falls short. Here are you in the holy deed of listening to the word of God expounded, and you fall short. Perhaps we are there at the very sacrament of the Lord's Supper, about to receive the sacred gift. And what are we? We fall short. And maybe you are there in the, in the moment of your most ardent prayer, and what is your heart? It falls short. And maybe you're on the battlefield about to give your life for your buddies because the grenade has landed and you are jumping onto it to give your life. And yet even in that moment, you fall short. That is who we are. That is our plight. We never do our best. But there's one more verb in Paul's sentence, and it's astonishing. What's the next verb? And are justified. Justified. Freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. 
What does it mean to be justified? It means to be counted right, right with God, accepted, embraced, beloved, to have our sins no longer regarded at heaven's court, to be counted a son and daughter of God, worthy to sit at his table, a citizen of the kingdom who's no criminal, but given status and citizenship in the heavenly life and the life of the world to come and the resurrected glories that are yet to follow. All have sinned. There is our past. And fall short. There is our present. And are justified. There is our status if we have indeed trusted this Christ who is the incarnate Son of God and the very gospel himself. And to whom does this blessedness come of status with God, of standing, of righteousness? Quote, to all who believe. It comes from faith to faith, or from faith the first to last. And so we have then a double sense of God's righteousness. Romans 1.17 speaks of a righteousness of God. Many modern versions speak of a righteousness from God. That's a choice made in light of Luther by the translators. Pretty good choice, actually. But there's a double sense here that God is right. How is he right? By giving mercy into the world. God is right to show mercy to the world. He could have done otherwise, couldn't he? But here is his goodness, that is his rightness, in granting mercy in the gospel of his Son. And the second sense, God's very righteousness counted as ours through faith in his Son. It is astonishing. How do you stand before God in the present moment? Not by having done your best, Josh. <laughs> You do pretty well in my glasses. Okay, do you always do your best? I know. <laughs> All right, I called a name here. Okay. Yeah, he won the Hebrew prize in my class. Okay, yeah. All right. But not by doing our best. We stand by the power of another who did indeed do his best. Who is the one who did his best at every moment of his life until giving his life on the cross? He satisfied divine wrath and then was vindicated by resurrection and now lives and reigns at the right hand of the Father everlastingly, establishing and expanding his kingdom until he comes again. He is the one alone who always did his best. Does this faith then abolish the law? Does it abolish the duty of obedience? Does it abolish discipleship so we can live any way we well please? Not at all. St. Paul, by the end of Romans 3, uh, addresses that question. Look at verse 27. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. Do we then, verse 31, nullify the law by this faith? And then Paul writes his strongest negative in all his arsenal of Greek terms, all his brilliant rhetoric. The Greek there is megenoita. 
one of the strongest negatives in all the Greek language. And the version here says, not at all, which is a namby-pamby rendering, not nearly strong enough. The King James does it really well, but not by exact translation. God forbid. Neither the word God nor the word forbid are in the Greek text. But the King James translators needed the strongest negative they could get in English. That's what they chose. Do we nullify this law by this faith that we've got? Not at all. King James, God forbid. Why? Rather, we uphold the law. And how do we uphold the law? Because the one who is justified by faith is now free. Free from the damnations of conscience, free from the worry and anxiety of inspecting one's own soul endlessly, as Luther tended to do in the monastery, free to love God and neighbor, as Luther writes so well in that great treatise called The Freedom of the Christian. You are free at last to serve God and to serve neighbor. And this faith has as its companion repentance, which turns from evil and turns toward God. How do we stand? We stand by faith. And Luther says it well this way, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. What does true faith bring? Listen again to Luther's wisdom on this question. God, our Father, has made all things depend upon faith, so that whoever has faith will have everything, and whoever does not have faith will have nothing. It is faith alone that achieves this, that all sins are remitted to us, and that the whole Decalogue is fulfilled by faith, because faith alone gives me Christ, who is the fulfillment and the goal of the law. What else does faith give? It imparts and brings with it the Holy Spirit, from whom all good works flow. If you're no longer terrified, can you serve your neighbor? Yeah. Yes, you can. You are free because of the grace of Jesus Christ. We are saved by faith alone. Rather, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. And so true faith bears its proper fruit. Jesus speaks of this justification only a few times in his gospel ministry, according to the records we have in the, in the four gospels of the New Testament. But one of the most famous stories of all from Jesus does it. You ready for the story? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. How does Jesus conclude the story? These are the words from Matthew's gospel. 
I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home, and here's the Lutheran word, justified. Justified. It's not really a Lutheran word, that's a Jesus word. Justified. This man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. How do we humble ourselves rightly in the story? We do so by trusting the power of another. That other is Jesus Christ. You recall the other story from Jesus about faith so much as a mustard seed, said to be, in figure of speech, the smallest of all seeds, right? If you have faith so much as a mustard seed, you say to this mountain, be moved to the sea, it shall be done for you. Is Jesus really interested in moving Mount Everest? I think not very much. What is the metaphor about, about moving the mountain to the heart of the sea? It's about people entering God's kingdom. If you have faith even so much as a grain of mustard seed, it shall be done. All the faith in the wrong Savior damn. The least faith in the right Savior saves, if it indeed is faith. Faith so much as a grain of mustard seed. That's extraordinary. And out of that tiny seed of weak, weak faith, God builds his kingdom in your life. That's extraordinary. And so we reflect, reflect upon this faith, if you'll pardon my indulgence, not the indulgence of, um, of um, medieval Rome, but uh, the indulgence of a poet. Here's a poem on faith. That word lays claim to a grace both great and good, the grace by which we stand, a stand we should. It links like chain our poor and mortal plight to heaven's throne till mercy yields its might, and earth moves heaven by heaven's mighty gift. So Archimedes' lever even stars must lift, and he bends low, who is triune majesty, to look upon the faith that makes us free. Though mortal minds may drift with time and tide and lose clear sight of how they must confide, the one in whom we trust proves faithful ever, and he who never fails avails forever. Stand true to that word, and faith unaltering proves, yet even faltering, faith shall not be moved. Once again, the text of the day. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live. Say the last two words with me, by faith. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we bow before you with immense gratitude because of the great gift of grace you've given us in the gospel of your Son. 
Our efforts always falter and fail. Yours never do. His never do. And so we embrace our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves us in such a way that all who trust him, even faltering, shall indeed be saved. We ask these things with deep, deep gratitude. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.